Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Four weeks ago, we were looking at verses 19 through 23, and then this pandemic began to affect us, and we talked about fear one Sunday, and then we looked at the cross, the the message of the cross on Palm Sunday, and then, of course, last Sunday was Easter and replayed a, a monologue that I had done several years ago. Today, we're going to get back to Colossians, and we're just going verse by verse through the Scripture. And today, I want to begin reading in verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has now been hidden from, age, hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, help us to understand that each of us have been called to minister to one another and to other people and to proclaim Jesus. I pray that you would raise people up to serve and to minister in your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as God had a purpose when he designed and created the world, he had a purpose when he designed and he created you. Do you know that the purpose for which God designed you, have you thought about what God wants you to do? A truck driver was hauling a load of 500 penguins to the zoo. Unfortunately, his truck broke down, and he eventually waved down another truck that was empty, and he offered the driver of that truck $500 to take these penguins to the zoo. Well, the next day, the, the first truck driver whose truck was broken got it fixed, and when he drove into town, he couldn't believe his eyes because just as he went into town, he saw the second truck driver crossing the road and 500 penguins waddling behind him a single file. Well, he jumped out of his truck and he ran over there and said, what in the world are you doing? I gave you $500 to take those penguins to the zoo. He said, yeah, I took them to the zoo. We had so much fun and I had money left over. I'm going to take them to the movies today. That guy did not know what he was supposed to be doing. Well, there are a lot of believers today who are fuzzy about what they're supposed to be doing. A lot of people don't realize that 
their lives are supposed to be lived for Christ, and that may be the reason that some Christians have so little impact on their world. God designed and created us for a purpose. There are a lot of things that we can devote our energies to, a lot of things that we spend our life doing. And you know what? Through all of this pandemic, we have realized that a lot of that stuff probably wasn't nearly as important as we thought it was because it's all been taken away for a while. But there's one thing that's worth all of the effort. It's worth it. And that one thing is sharing the gospel with other people. You see, the gospel is the culmination of God's plan for the ages. There's nothing more important in this world than Jesus Christ and the gospel and the fact that he died on the cross for you and me. And in verse 23, Paul declared himself a minister. We looked at that several weeks ago. It was the word servant of the gospel. This is one of the areas that Paul talks about his ministry, and you would probably think, well, that doesn't really relate to me, but yes, it does, because all of us are supposed to be servants, serving the Lord, ministers of God. You are a minister. Now, you may not be a preacher, and you may not be on the staff of a church, but you are called to ministry, and I'm thankful that a lot of you have been going through the ministry that... Uh, through by calling and keeping up with people and taking care of people. You are ministering to one another. But I want us to learn a few things about the ministry. What is real Christian ministry? Well, Paul gives us a good example, and let's learn from him. First, I want you to notice the struggle in ministry. In verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul begins by talking about suffering. Folks, I want you to know that ministry is hard. It's difficult. It's rewarding, and you see God do a lot of wonderful things, but if you think for a moment any kind of ministry is simple and easy, that's not true, because Paul mentions a couple of things about his ministry. First, he talks about what I call the anguish. He's committed to serving and to preaching the Word of God, even to the point he's willing to suffer for it. Now, some, some of the commentators have said that verse 24 is one of the most difficult verses to interpret, and the reason is, is because, first of all, there's a phrase in there, and I'll get to it in just a second, that's, that's grossly misinterpreted, but another reason is that when you're preaching to Americans, very few of them have suffered for the gospel. They've suffered because of their Christianity. You wouldn't want to compare scars with Paul. Listen to his resume. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 28, Paul said, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I want to tell you something. You don't want to get in a suffering comparison with Paul. Paul tells the Colossians that he's not only suffering for the gospel, he's suffering for them. And how can that be when he's never been there? I told you earlier, Paul never, never had been to the Colossian church. He hoped to go one day, but he never had been. He did not establish this church, and yet he says, I'm suffering for you. How can that be? He's thinking about all the suffering that he's endured to preach the gospel, and if he had dodged all of that suffering, the Colossians would not have heard the gospel because Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul, and then Epaphras went back to his hometown in Colossae and began this church. What sacrifices have you made for the gospel lately? Isn't it amazing how when things begin to get a little bit difficult, we begin to complain about it? When Bishop Melvin Wheatley was in his first church, just out of seminary, he wanted his first sermon to make a real impact on the new congregation. So he preached what he thought was the best sermon on suffering that he could possibly imagine and the meaning of it. Meaning of it. And at the door, after the service, one little lady who always had a compliment for the preacher said, Oh, Reverend Wheatley, I never knew what it really meant to suffer until I heard you preach. Now, some of you think that's the suffering you do. Some of you are suffering right now by listening to this message, or you come to church and you suffer through the music and you suffer through the sermon and you suffer through it, and then you get to go home. Well, folks, I want to tell you something. You're not suffering. Americans don't suffer much. We think we're suffering now because we are separated from one another, and none of us like it. I hope we never take for granted being able to meet together again whenever that day comes. But a lot of people suffer for the gospel. Consider a wife who chooses every Sunday to come to church alone. Her husband not only refuses to come with her, but he does little things to make it known that he's really not supportive of that. He begs her to stay home on Sunday, and then he's obviously frustrated as she gets ready for worship. Her, his verbal silence and his sighs and his emotional distance are all subtle weapons that he uses to try to get what he wants. Sometimes he even throws in a zinger like, I don't know why you go there anyway. It doesn't make any difference in you. At church, she must navigate the kind but painful questions. I don't see your husband anymore. Is everything Okay. And on her drive home, she knows that her husband missed what she experienced in worship with God's people and that he won't even ask how worship was. And as she walks up to the door of her house with a heart loaded with pain and disappointment, she prays, Jesus, help me love my husband. She walks through the door with a Christ-like love and says, honey, 
I'm home. That's a, a woman who's showing Christ to her husband despite some significant pain. You see, she's not going to be martyred for her faith, but she's suffering. And her suffering has an eternal purpose. Sometimes people are suffering we don't even know about. And our prayer should be, God, help me to be holy even when I'm hurting. Help me to be holy even when I'm hurting. Paul, in this verse, makes this remarkable statement. And I want you to notice it. I want you to learn from this. You'll notice he says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, it's very important to understand what Paul means here and what he doesn't mean. You see, first of all, he does not mean that there was anything lacking on Jesus' death on the cross for sin. He paid it all. He covered all of it. Nothing was lacking. The Bible's clear that his death was sufficient to pay for all the sins of mankind. In fact, we read in Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There was and is nothing lacking in Christ's death. He paid it all. There's not one sin he did not cover. Now, there are those who believe and teach about purgatory. And they use this scripture to mean that Christ did not cover all the sins. In fact, you notice in verse 24, it says, to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. They believe that there are some sins on this earth that are so heinous that it, did, it was not covered by Christ on the cross. And when they die, they have to go to a holding place, it's a place of torment, purgatory, for a while to pay the rest of the price. And then they get to go to heaven. But folks, I want to tell you something. That word afflictions in verse 24 is never used in the Bible to describe the suffering and death of Christ on the cross. It's not what it means. In fact, that's a gross misinterpretation to say that, first of all, there's even a purgatory. But you can't use this verse to say, well, I'm going to go there and pay the rest of the price that Jesus did not pay. I've got news for you. Just like the song says, Jesus paid it all. Paul's not speaking about suffering for sin here, but rather he's saying this. All the suffering that Jesus went through for our sins, he paid the price. But that suffering that Jesus went through, it's still here on the earth for those who follow Jesus. Paul mentions it in Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Although Jesus did all the suffering necessary to pay for sin, that did not mean that there's no suffering left on this earth for those who follow him. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you in John 15.18. And when the gospel's presented in the fullness of God, in the fullness of God's word, people are not always going to like it. Just trust me on that one. When you teach the word of God, people don't always like it. 
Suffering sometimes is involved in the body of Christ. One man put it this way. Christ suffered for me while here on the earth, and I could suffer because of him now, on the, right now. He took it while he was here. I can take it while he's gone. In other words, he's not paying for his sin. He's just saying if they hated Jesus, they're going to hate his followers. That's what he's talking about. Sometimes they're suffering. But in the midst of that suffering, notice the second thing, the attitude that Paul has. I now rejoice in my sufferings. He's so committed to presenting God's word that he's willing to suffer for it, and he rejoices in it. Now, we don't do very well there, do we? Pain and suffering are inevitable. Are inevitable. <laughs> Pain and suffering are inevitable. Misery is optional. Paul did not say he enjoyed it. He didn't say he enjoyed suffering. He said he rejoiced in it. You see, folks, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is dependent upon our circumstances. Right now, we are not happy about our circumstances, are we? We don't like all this separation. We don't like being confined to our home. We're not happy about that. But you can't take the joy from us because the joy doesn't come from circumstances. It comes from the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Happiness depends on circumstances. Joy comes from the Lord. Let me mention just a few things that, that suffering can bring that you can rejoice in. First of all, suffering brings believers closer to Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Suffering in the cause of Christ helps us better understand what Jesus went through. We can relate a little bit more to what Jesus went through. Suffering produces assurance in our hearts. He said in John 15, 20, the servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul said to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if you suffer or you're ridiculed or you're persecuted for Jesus, you can say, thank you, Lord. It's affirming that I'm one of your children. Now, you're not looking for trouble, but if somebody doesn't like you because you follow Jesus, Jesus would basically say, and this is a little, uh, oh, what's the word, um, casual, he'd say, welcome to the club. They didn't like me, they're not going to like you. Peter tells the suffering Christians, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, that's the, the harshest form of verbal abuse. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Suffering causes believers to sense the presence of the Lord. Another thing suffering does, it brings rewards in heaven. Romans eight seventeen. if indeed we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for momentary light affliction is creating in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Suffering also can result in the salvation of other people. 
Church history is filled with the accounts of people who've come to follow Jesus because they watched other Christians endure suffering and they had a joy in their heart. They were not shaken. Another thing is that suffering silences Satan. He wants suffering to harm us, but God brings good out of it. You want to use Job as an example? Job 1.20 through 22 says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Suffering. People think ministry's easy. But you know what? I've seen wounded Christians quit serving the Lord because it became difficult. Some have even dropped out of church and in a few cases stopped following Christ. I've seen pastors leave the ministry because of criticism. But what should you do? You're going to quit? No, you should rejoice. Count it a privilege that you've been considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. That's what the apostles did in Acts 5.41. They'd just been beaten, and they went away rejoicing considering the fact that they counted themselves worthy to be suffering for Christ. So folks, I want to tell you something. I, I'm not going to paint a rosy picture. Ministry's not easy. There's a struggle in it because the world hates Jesus. They're going, to, he's going to, they're going to hate his followers. A second example from Paul is the service in ministry. Look at verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has now been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I want you to notice several things about Paul's service and ministry, and we can relate to that too. First of all, Paul's appointment, the appointment of his was different. And Paul never lost the sense of wonder. Why did God call me to do this? And he never tired of talking about it. Paul did, did not volunteer to follow, to be a minister of Christ. He was, a, he was drafted. <laughs> Jesus struck him on the road to Damascus. He was ordained by God to be a servant. And not only a servant, but to administer the precious truth of the word of God. Folks, I want you to know God has called you. He called you out. He saved you. And you've been set apart. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart for service. God wants you to serve him, every child of God. I continue to be amazed at how God would even allow me to be saved. I certainly don't deserve it, neither do you. 
And when we grasp the, the magnitude of that truth that I once was lost and now I'm saved by the sheer grace of God, then we want to involve our time and our talents and our treasures to serve the Lord. We, Lord, I've given you my life. That includes everything I have. So we honor him with our life. But then not only was Paul appointed, just like you're appointed, you were called out. You have been given a ministry. Notice the assignment. Paul was entrusted with a special, special task. He was to present the word of God in its fullness. The complete word of God. In fact, under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, Paul penned majority of the New Testament that we have today. That means that the word of God in all its fullness. You know, one of the reasons we go verse by verse, or that's usually what I like to do. I, I do that more often than not. Occasionally we'll take a, a break like we did the last few weeks. But when you communicate the whole counsel of God, it's not always popular. Now, I'll tell you, there are some Sundays that I wish I could skip a few verses so I wouldn't have to deal with you because <laughs> I know it's going to make you mad. I wouldn't have to deal with you if I skip it. Someone has said that the pastor's job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And that's why we preach about heaven and hell. And that's why we proclaim that Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God. And that's why we're unashamedly committed to the sanctification and growth of believers. Verse 26 talks about a mystery. Now, when I say the word mystery, you think of things like Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes. But the word mystery here means something that was hidden and not able to be discovered by human means. We didn't come up this on our own. We could not figure it out. It's something that's secret that can only be known when God chooses to reveal it. And Paul said, I was given the mystery. He mentions it in Ephesians 3, 3, the mystery made known to me by revelation. And Paul says that the mystery was something that was kept hidden for many years. The church, for example, was, was an unknown fact in the Old Testament. They had no concept of what we have today as the church. It was a mystery. Only till after Jesus died and was resurrected and he established the, the church has the church been revealed to the saints, as it's mentioned here. The mystery has been revealed to the saints. The question of how God was going to deal with sin, the question of how he's going to bring all these people together around the world, they didn't know that. It was a mystery before, the, before Jesus came. And now even today, Salvation is such a mystery to so many people. Stay with me here. You see, the grace of God is so outrageous to some people. By normal human reasoning, it doesn't make any sense for one person to die and pay for the sins of the entire world and for God to dwell inside of you and me. That doesn't make any sense. But that's our assignment. Look at verse 27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ 
in you the hope of glory. Ephesians 2.13 says, Now those who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.12, those without hope and without God. We used to be that way. Paul sums it up. He says, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Lost people don't understand that. The world does not understand that. They look at us like we're a bunch of religious people. Oh, they're, they're religious all right. In fact, when somebody says, well, that's, they're a religious person, that tells me right then it's a mystery to them what salvation is. Because the true mystery of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God living in you and, and me, in the verses preceding this that we looked at about a month ago, it talked about Jesus being, having all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling within Jesus. And now we learn that Jesus dwells within the believer. And so we move from God in Christ to Christ in you and me. And for a lot of people, that's a mystery. And the reason it's called the hope is because we've not yet received our full inheritance. Why? Even though we're separated, even though we're at home and we're locked up, we still have hope, don't we? Amen? I think I heard you say amen. We still have hope. It's in Jesus. We haven't gotten home yet. Look at Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. They did an interesting experiment years ago at Duke University. A group of behavioral scientists took some wharf rats. Now, we don't know what a wharf rat is around here. We don't have any wharfs. We don't have that much water. But a wharf rat, they took them and they put them in a tank of water and observed them to see how long they would survive before they drown. The average time was 17 minutes. Then they repeated this experiment, but this time they rescued the rats just before the point of drowning. They dried them off and returned them to their cages, fed them, and let them play for a few days, and then they repeated the drowning experiment. This time, the average survival time for these rats increased from 17 minutes to 36 hours. The scientists explained that phenomenon by pointing out that the second time around, the rats had hope. They believed that they could survive this because they had done so before. One scientist said they were able to survive because they had been saved <laughs> at least once before. We usually say as long as there is life, there is hope. But the Duke University experiment proved as long as there is hope, there is life. What keeps us going? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I've had questions asked like, well, is all of this that's taking place, is it a sign of the end times? Folks, we're living in the end times. We have been for years. I don't know if the rapture is going to occur before long. I hope it does. Coronavirus won't bother us there, will it? But we have hope. 
in Jesus. Hope is not something that you wish will something will happen. Hope is the assurance of something that's going to take place. And our hope is in Christ. Amen? It is a mystery to the non-believer. You don't see anybody that doesn't know. You don't see people who don't know Jesus. Let me say this right. People who don't know Christ, especially when they're writing stories for Hollywood or TV, they never present a Christian correctly, do they? They don't get it. They don't understand. The sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit indwells us. They don't get it. We're a mystery to the non-believer. And some of you may have tuned in today and you don't know Jesus. Let me tell you something. To have eternal life, you turn from your sin. It's called repentance. And you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and he rose again. We celebrated that last week. Of course, we celebrate it every week because we serve a risen Christ. And you commit your life to him. Just like was illustrated through Dawson's baptism. The old way of life is gone. You have a new life in Christ. The baptism didn't save him. It's when he committed his life to Jesus. Simple enough for a child to understand. You give your life to him. So we see Paul's struggle, and then you see his service. But then notice, let me quickly move on. The stewardship in this ministry, he was given a job. We've been given a job. What is that job? We're supposed to present a message. Notice first the apex, the peak of this message, the very top. The ultimate part of the message, the apex, is to proclaim him. Everything we do should be Christ-centered. So who do we preach? Who's the most important? What is, who is the most important part of the message? It's Jesus. It's the apex of the message. The second truth is the approach of this message. How did Paul approach this? We have the word of God. We're supposed to teach people the word of God. We're supposed to proclaim the word of God. How are we supposed to do this? Two things. One is admonition, admonishing. It carries the idea of warning people. We don't like this part of it. I don't want to warn anybody. I just want everybody to feel good. And that's why a lot of times today you hear messages, so-called messages, where they don't ever talk about warning people of anything. Just make you feel good. Just, Just make you feel good all the time. We want you to just love everybody and to feel good all the time. Right? The scripture says we're supposed to admonish people. I don't enjoy it. I don't like warning people. Paul didn't hold it back, though. When he thought somebody needed to be warned, he warned them. He did it in love. He did it in a spirit of love, but he warned them and corrected them. And then the other part is apprehension. We want them to apprehend, to comprehend the word of God, the teaching that involves instruction and involves teaching people not only doctrine, but how to live in the critical conduct of Christians. Jesus told us in Matthew 28 to teach disciples. So there's two approaches when we come to the word of God. It warns us, doesn't it? It speaks of heaven and hell. It speaks of forgiveness and judgment. It warns people, but it also teaches people. We want to know more about Christ and more about what he wants us to do. And the third part of this stewardship is the ambition. His goal was to proclaim it to everyone, 
Did you notice? Look at verse 28 and see how many times every man, every man, every man, three times it's used there. Now, it's including women. It's not being um, chauvinist here. The goal of proclaiming Christ through admonishment and teaching is so that we can present everyone perfect. In verse 28, the word perfect does not mean without sin. It means mature. We want people to grow up, to grow in Christ. Every man is repeated three times as emphasis, which shows that Paul's goal was that every person on earth hear the gospel and be taught how God loves us and how God will grow us. I think it's the Marines. Maybe it's all the military has the motto, no one left behind. We don't want to leave anybody behind when it comes to the gospel. Our job as a church is not to just admonish or even to teach. We do those things in order to create people to become spiritually mature as Christ's followers. We should all be involved in the process of growth. We're all involved in becoming more like Christ. And our focus is not on numerical growth, but on spiritual growth. We're doing that now. We're here in an empty building, pretty much empty. There's a few people in here. But you're still growing in the Lord. You don't have to have a building to grow. It's a tool we want to build believers. We're all about transformation, not just information. And Paul gives the answer to how to do all of that. It's hard. It's serving. There's an assignment, a stewardship about it. But verse 29, and I close with this, talks about the strength for ministry. To this end, I also labor. That phrase, to this end, means telling others about Christ. And the word labor, to this end I also labor, means to grow weary or tired, to work hard to the point of exhaustion. And the word striving in verse 29 means to agonize or to struggle as an athlete does in a context, contest. That's the same word used when Jesus was agonizing in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Both words are used of athletes competing in the arena. Paul used this word in 2 Timothy 4, 7 when he said, I have fought a good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. In verse 29, there's a play on words in the Greek. It says, you could translate it this way, striving according to his energy which powerfully energizes within me. We're just weak human vessels. We cannot do it on our own. We become spiritually fatigued. I am moved and appreciate so much you wonderful people at Southcrest who just continue to serve with a determination, even when you're tired, even when you're weary, because you've learned that the strength comes from the Lord. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us.
We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Later in Philippians 4, 3, he wrote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul surrendered his availability to God's ability. The question is, will you? For those of you who've never come to Christ, you can follow Christ today. You see, God loves you. God wants you. God will save you. It's a mystery. It's a mystery why he even wants to, but he will. God will save you. You must turn from your sin. It's called repentance. I've changed my mind. I'm going in a different direction. And you ask God to forgive you. You ask Christ to come into your life. You believe that he died on the cross and rose again. And you say, Lord, I I commit my life as best I know how with everything I have. I want you to come in and save me. I want you to be the Lord, the boss of my life. I give you my life. I surrender to you. And if you've never done that, you can do that even now or in your home or where you're watching from. If you'll hit that connect button, you'll find that somebody's there to pray with you and to help you to know more about Jesus. And for those of you who already know Jesus, maybe it's time for you to get back in the fight or get back in the race. Why did you quit? Somebody hurt my feelings. Well, welcome to ministry. They're going to hurt your feelings. But your commitment's to Christ. Get back in the race. The Lord needs you. I want us to pray. Lord, I lift up those right now who need to receive Christ as their Savior. It's been a mystery to them up until now. It's a mystery of what these people have that they don't have, and it's Jesus. And I pray that you would tug at their heart and show them that you are there to save them. Lord, I pray that even now some of them would connect with you and commit their life to you. And I pray for believers, Lord, that you would encourage them today and that they might not be discouraged, that you would just re-energize them to follow you. Lord, we know that ministry's hard. It's hard work. It's inconvenient. People sometimes will criticize, but help us to understand that The real enemy is not flesh and blood. It's the prince of darkness, the powers of evil that are against God. I pray for those that need to commit their lives to you right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.